From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Some may wonder whether prison can actually rehabilitate felons. We'll look at the statewide statistics and then tell you about a program that's offering a way out to ex-cons and the story of one ex-con who's turned his life around as a result. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. As well as the Bonner Family Foundation, Community Medical Centers, Dewey Square Group, Comcast Financial Agency, Nossiman LLP, Sagasser Watkins & Wheeland, and Valley Children's Hospital. Welcome. A key goal of prison is rehabilitation, and if released, we want those folks not to recommit crimes uh, at a later date. Recently, there's been a dramatic shift in policy away from the way we treat criminals, more on a focus on rehabilitation instead of a focus on punishment. The question is, what impact has this public policy shift had on those involved in the most serious crimes, felons? Has it made them more or less likely to reoffend? Our guest is Justin Goss with the nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California, who recently authored a report that attempts to answer that very question. Welcome to the Matty Report. Great to be here. Thanks. So, first, it's helpful to define what is recidivism. We hear that word a lot. How is it measured? Yeah, recidivism is a broad swath of reoffending behavior. We define it in our study in four different ways to try to capture the umbrella term that's usually used. So we follow offenders from 2011 to 2015 and track them for two years after they're released from a period of incarceration or start a period of supervision, like probation. Right. And we measure it in terms of rearrest for any offense right. after being convicted of a, a prior offense. Uh, rearrest for a felony offense in particular, reconviction for any offense, or reconviction for a felony offense. Yeah, and in I think I think it's a really important point. I want to underscore that because because people might have missed what you were saying there, and that is there's a difference between rearrest and reconviction, um, right? You could be arrested but found innocent uh, or not found guilty. Um, so that's and then we'll talk about more of that in a moment. But I yeah, want to make sure people understand the difference between rearrest and reconviction. They're different things. Certainly. So okay, historically, California, how's it done in recidivism rates compared to other states? So historically, California's recidivism rates have been higher than some of its comparable neighbors. But we'll get into a little bit later how those comparisons are a little bit challenging to make apples to apples comparisons right. between. Right. But historically, California in the decade leading up to 2011, when we passed a major criminal justice reform, about two-thirds of all offenders were returned to prison after having been released And some of those because prison. of parole violations. We'll, we'll talk about that. That's true. There are multiple ways to return to prison. Right. And, it, and by the way, another thing that, that I've learned as I'm, I'm reading this stuff is there's a difference between prison and jail. State, prison, yes. county, jail. Absolutely. Um, yeah, people kind of mix, mix those terms together sometimes. And I was looking at your report compared to New York, just to give you a kind of a juxtaposition. Sure. Um, New York, 43%. Correct. Texas, 36%. Florida, 25%. So we had higher rates going into this. That's true. Folks were returning to prison at higher rates than how those states typically define recidivism. Right, and that changed, and we'll talk about it after 2011. Mm -hmm. So there were several major criminal justice reforms that occurred in the past decade. Uh, can you describe the most consequential? Let me talk about two there. So... First, in 2011, there was what's now referred to as public safety realignment, where in response to the United States Supreme Court holding that California's prisons were overcrowded, the governor and the legislature acted to reduce the prison population, reduce overcrowding, without having to build more prisons, which would and be... And they were really, really overcrowded. It wasn't just a few people. It was like... 
50, 60, 70 percent more than they're supposed to have. Capacity. That's true. If you want to put a number on it, the, the Supreme Court ordered California to reduce its prison population to 137.5 percent of rated capacity. So still 37.5 percent above capacity. That is true. But they were way beyond that. That is correct. Okay. Yes. And so realignment, what it did was it caused this mass transfer, and I'm glad that you talked about state prison versus county jail, mm -hmm. because it caused a mass realignment of supervision for, of offenders from state prison to county jail. And those folks who were ineligible to be realigned were those who had serious violent or sex-related criminal histories. And so what it did was it concentrated some of these more serious offenders in state prisons right. and then changed supervision status for a much broader swath of offenders to the uh, to the county. Yeah, and then the question also is, which is not necessarily something I want to get into in much detail, but county jails not, not, were not necessarily designed for this population, right? And so all of a sudden you're shifting all these people to county jails that really weren't ready for it in, in some ways. So that, that, that's another issue. I do want to ask you about, you know, these reforms are not without controversy. I mean, people, their proponents, their, their opponents, proponents of these things, you know, the, the three strikes group um, thought you'd be tough on crime versus th this was a different approach uh, to crime. Uh, what have been some of the arguments? The second reform that really caused a significant amount of controversy came after realignment 2014 with Proposition 47, oh, okay. which reclassified some property and drug offenses from felonies to misdemeanors. The three and nons, right? Was was nonviolent, non-serious, non-sexual. Well, so that that again was realignment. Those those were okay. the those were the folks who were able to be realigned from state prison to county okay. jail. Prop 47 targeted just a few lower-level drug and property offenses okay. and changed their classification from felonies to misdemeanors. And the, the controversy that you speak of, so proponents argued that incarceration is costly and doesn't really do much to improve rehabilitation outcomes. And they point to the high recidivism rates or return to prison rates that you touched on earlier to say that it's not really working and the taxpayers aren't getting their money's worth. Opponents argue that reduce, reducing incarceration spells and shortening the sentences takes away a key deterrent for offenders and also possibly threatens public safety. Okay, well, you know, measuring recidivism is a little more complicated than you might think. That conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Justin Goss with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California about a report recently he authored called, entitled Recidivism of Felony Offenders in California. So you state in your report that, quote, recidivism is notoriously hard to measure, unquote. Why? There's a couple reasons, but let me talk about the main one that we talk about in the report, which is that recidivism is a proxy for reoffending behavior, and it tends to be a little bit over-inclusive and under-inclusive, where it's over-inclusive in the sense that past research has shown that ex-offenders under more stringent supervision might commit minor technical violations that are then detected more easily. Like, yeah, because they're being watched. Exactly, right. right. And as a result, that ends up showing up as recidivism where it might not have ordinarily. The other thing is a little bit easier to imagine where it's under-inclusive, where recidivism can only be detected if law enforcement in some way detects that reoffending behavior. So you can imagine that someone could be released from a period of incarceration, go on to reoffend, but then there's no arrest, and so we don't observe it in the data. Right, right. Um, so yeah, it, it all depends on the numbers, what's, what's being collected. So you state, you also state in, in your report that it's now difficult, key word is now, uh, to compare California's recidivism rates with those of other states. Why? There's, there's also a couple of reasons for that. Uh, on, the, on the one hand, there are, we've been talking about multiple measures of recidivism, and so it's always been challenging because certain states might define recidivism differently, where, for mm -hmm. instance, prior to realignment, California defined recidivism as return to prison rate, where 
since most folks were being supervised by the state prisons, they would leave state prisons, and if they reoffended, they would come back to state prison. Mm -hmm. But after realignment, that definition needed to change because most offenders were no longer being supervised by state prison. So now California uses the three-year reconviction rate for offenses to measure recidivism. Right. And, and when you can you give us an overview on the, on felony offenders uh, who were released? How many were being released from prison or jail? How many were on probation? Can an, an ish an idea of that? In our data, so we have data from twelve of the states' counties that comprise. 300,000 felony offenders between who were released between October 2011 and October 2015. Pretty good sample size. Yeah, it, mm. it, it makes up about 60%. Okay. Uh, th those 12 counties account for 60% of California's offender population. And so among those, what we saw were that 34% were released from a period, a, sen a period of being sentenced to jail followed by probation. Mm -hmm. About a third were sentenced to prison. About a quarter came from a period of only probation and about one in ten served just a period of uh, jail with no probation. So, so kind, of give, kind of give an idea of what the felony population looks like. So you mentioned um, that releases varied across different sentencing groups. Can you explain that? Yes. What we saw was that as we as time moves further away from public safety realignment in 2011, there's a gradual decrease in the number of releases from state prison, which makes sense because fewer, fewer of Right, the population is smaller. Exactly, fewer right. offenders are going to prison, fewer offenders are coming out. And then we also saw a gradual increase in the number of offenders being sentenced to jail with no probation because that was a creation of realignment known as straight sentencing where you could be sentenced to jail with no probation tail. Yeah, I was gonna ask you what the straight sentencing uh, was about. Thank you for clarifying that in advance of my asking the question. <laughs> um, so uh, let's talk about demographics uh, and criminal histories. Do you see any patterns uh, among felony offenders? Yeah, in the 300,000 offenders that we that are in our data, the average age was 34 years old. 84 mm percent, -hmm. so the vast majority, so, and by were the way, male. I, yeah, so yeah, 80% are male. But I want to get back to that number 34. I noticed sure. that in your report. But you also said the first conviction was at 24. That is um, that so, is true. Yeah. And the average number of prior arrests was 15. Wow. So, yeah. So that's a, a lot of that's a frequent flyer, as it were. That that's that's one way to refer to them. Right. Yeah. Um, other other things that we saw along racial ethnic lines: a quarter of them were African American, a little less than a third were white, and four in ten were Latino. So that that doesn't match up necessarily with the with the general population, right? Um, some of those statistics are higher than than. The than the general population. That's true. Historically, what we see in pri in California's prisons and jails is that African Americans tend to be overrepresented, Latinos tend to be somewhat overrepresented, and whites tend to be underrepresented relative to their numbers in the population. In terms of criminal histories, which you also asked about, about one in five of these offenders were serving an offense for an offense against another person. Which a, could be a violent offense. A violent or nonviolent, right, a certain right. nonviolent offense. But it could be a violent, yeah. Yes, absolutely, okay. absolutely. Okay. Uh, and about a third were for a drug offense and a little more than a quarter were for a property offense. Property offense, yeah, like burglary, things of that nature. Exactly. So, okay, how, how do uh, those characteristics change over time as the criminal justice reforms were implemented? What we saw over time is that we get, as we get further away from realignment, the population tends to get a little bit older. The population is a little bit more more likely to be male. The population is a little bit less likely to be white. And post Prop 47, as we talked about before, which change certain drug offenses from felonies to misdemeanors, right. the likelihood that someone was serving a sentence for a drug offense decreased. Okay. Uh, well, up next, how often are ex-felons rearrested after they're released, and how often do those arrests lead to new convictions? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report.
Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Justin Goss, an expert in the criminal justice system with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California, about recidivism rates for ex-felons after release. So uh, what types of crimes are being committed by ex-felons? Well, so we tracked reoffending behavior over time, o over the period of four years, October 2011 to October 2015, and followed reoffense behavior for a period of two years after they were released from re from incarceration. And we're talking about rearrest as well as reconviction. That's right. So, just to recap, we measure. Re recidivism along four lines: rearrest for any offense, right. rearrest for felony offenses, reconviction. So you're. I was giving a summary, but yes, in, in more detail, yeah, in terms of uh, yeah, arrest rates for felons overall, et cetera. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Reconviction and then reconviction for a felony offense. And right. what we found overall is that rearrests declined during this period by three percent, which we we would say is a relatively small decrease, right. but a significant one. The felony rearrest rate for offenders declined by five percent during the period. The reconviction rate declined by 15%, so a larger amount, and the felony reconviction rate declined by 27%, which is quite substantial. Yeah, and I was looking at the thing, it, it says the, if I understand this correctly, the overall rearrest rate for crimes against persons, which could include violent crimes, increased by 5%, and felony rearrest rate also rose by 7%, and I'm just wondering, for those folks who are saying, you know, we're getting soft on crime, do these statistics prove that removing the threat of prison, kind of de-emphasizing punishment, is emboldening criminals? Not necessarily. That is a hypothesis, the, a change in criminal behavior in response to these criminal justice reforms. That is an interpretation of the data, but we can't actually say that for sure. It's also important to contextualize that finding a little bit and say that reconvictions for offenses against persons, which as you said, includes violent offenses, but also includes nonviolent offenses, such right. as stalking or harassment. Okay. Reconvictions stayed mostly flat during this period. The other thing, just to contextualize it a little bit more for the audience, is is that there was an increase uh, that that 5% increase in rearrest for offenses against persons represented only a 1 percentage point increase in rearrest re rates from 19% to 20%. Uh -huh. So 5% yeah. is actually a relatively small increase. Right, right. Yeah, 1% overall. So let me ask you this, recidivism uh, rates when it comes to property crimes. Um, what did you find there? For property crimes, what we found is that there was significant fluctuation where rates increased a little bit as we got further away from realignment, but then fell as we got further away from realignment and then declined after Prop 47. Ultimately, we, what we found is that the overall rearrest rate for property offenses stayed about the same over the period of the, of the entirety of the data, and that we observed a small decline in felony rearrest rates for property offenses by about 4%. So 4% lower start to finish. A lower. And then reconvictions followed about the same pattern. Re overall reconvictions for property offenses stayed about the so same. I think some people were worried that, you know, uh, that, that maybe people with drug offenses or whatever are going to go out and cause uh, property crimes. Um, but that's not, the data is not really showing that. Not in terms of property offenses. No, okay. not, not when we look over the full course of the, those uh, four years of our data. Well, let's talk about uh, drug offenses. What are the recidivism rates for drug offenses? Drug offenses we saw significant changes following particularly Proposition 47. So over the full period of the data, and most, most of these changes we think are partially attributable at least to Proposition 47, which again took misdemeanor drug offenses from, or so, excuse me, took felony drug right. offenses and, and reclassified them as misdemeanor drug offenses. So you had fewer folks serving longer sentences right. for these drug offenses. So what we saw is that rearrest rates for drug, of, drug offenses declined by 9% during the data. So 
relatively large amount. Okay. But even more so for felony rearrests for drug offenses, they fell by 44%. Wow, that, that's a big number. Large number. It's a very but, large number. But not, but not quite as large as the felony reconviction rate for drug offenses, which fell by 69%. Wow. But again, we, we would yeah. expect to see this just because offenses that folks were being arrested for are no longer felonies. Right, instead, they're reclassifying. Instead, they're misdemeanors. Yeah, exactly. wow, but that's, those are tremendous drops. Well, what about um, offenses like DUI and, and possession, possession of a weapon, those recidivism rates in, in that area? This was a little bit more of a mixed bag in terms of what we saw, where the rearrest rate for these other offenses, like you mm -hmm. said, DU DUIs or possession of a weapon, they declined by 8% start to okay. finish. But the felony rearrest rate increased slightly by 9%. And then the overall reconviction rate for these offenses rose by 6% and the felony reconviction rate increased by 9%. Okay, so a bit of a mixed bag. Excuse me, 13%. A mixed bag is basically what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. So what conclusions can you draw from all these findings? It's, it's always a little bit difficult to get to the bottom of what, what's causing these changes in reoffending behavior. What, what we can say for sure is that these criminal justice reforms happened, and then we did not see substantial increases in reoffending. Which behavior. was a concern of a lot of people. Absolutely, yeah. Opponents were opponents were concerned, perhaps fairly, mm -hmm. that these criminal justice reforms, and as you said, realigning folks from state state prison supervision to county jail and probation supervision, where the counties were initially unused to supervising right. certain types of offenders people were concerned as to what that would do to the public safety, but we did not see substantial increases in reoffending behavior. Yeah, it seems like they're working it out as, as, as they go along. Well, up next, uh, some recommendations on how we can reduce recidivism even, even more. That conversation in a moment. This is The Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with The Maddie Institute. We're talking with Justin Goss, an expert in recidivism with a nonpartisan public policy institute of California about recidivism rates among ex-felons who've been released since California passed a series of criminal justice reforms over the last decade. In short, has California's attempt at criminal justice reform increased or decreased recidivism among ex-felons? So, felons have been released and then reconvicted. Did you observe any patterns based if they served their sentences uh, in prison, state prison, or locally in a county jail or probation? What we found was pretty interesting. Where So, we were able to compare the outcomes for folks being released from prison to folks being released from a period of just jail supervision, jail and probation, or probation only. And what we found is that the group sentenced to jail only had lower rearrest and reconviction rates than the group sentenced to prison. Mm -hmm. What we found for the probation and jail and probation groups, a little bit more of a mixed bag. In both cases, we found higher rates of rearrest, but lower rates of both reconviction and felony reconviction. So they're being watched, but maybe not convicted. So that's easier to arrest them, but maybe not not, not convict them. Exactly. It ties back to what we were talking about with recidivism sometimes being over-inclusive, where their behavior, it's being detected, but then ultimately either right. the, a, the DA decides not to file charges right. or in something in the law enforcement, it does not rise to the level yeah, and of that's, conviction. And that's a really, really good point because it depends a lot on, on the DA's, their, uh, their discretion about whether or not they want to prosecute certain crimes uh, and go after certain people. And so that impacts recidivism rates uh, from, from location to location. Exactly. Um, let me ask this. What, what kinds of offenses were these people later convicted of? Right. So we broke down the the specific types of offenses that if a person was re, did reoffend, did recidivate, mm -hmm. what type of offense they were most likely to have been re, to have been uh, to have reoffended with. So uh, if 
a person reoffended, and it was for an offense against a person, so a violent, a violent offense, an offense against a person, they were most likely to have come from the prison or jail group. Compared to if a person reoffended and it was for a property offense, they were most likely to have come from the jail group in particular more right. so than any of the other groups. And then lastly, if it was for a drug offense, it was most likely that the person was super, being supervised by probation only. Yeah, and that kind of makes sense. I mean, it sounds like the prison population is a little bit, frankly, hardcore um, and more the more serious crimes. More and that's, serious. And that's where those folks are coming from. So were there any trends you noticed by the type of offense? I mean, was there an increase and decrease, for example, in drug and property crimes? Yeah, over, overall we found that... It declined a little bit, didn't it? We, overall we found that offenses against persons increased a little bit, that offenses, reconvictions for offenses by, for property offenses decreased slightly during the period, and then rearrests and reconvictions for drug offenses during the period declined substantially. Okay, so overall, um, was there an increase, like getting right down to brass tacks here, was there an increase or decrease in rearrest rates? First? Overall, we found a small decrease, about 3%, in rearrest rates overall. We found a somewhat larger, about 9%, in terms of rearrest for felony, felonies in particular. And mm -hmm. then we found decreases, larger decreases in reconvictions, both for overall offenses and felony offenses. So that's some good news. There's, there's a decline there. Um, so that seems to be good news. So why are those rates then, do you think, why I think are they declining? Does this prove that California's attempt at criminal justice reform might actually be working? It depends on what you think the goal of criminal justice reform was. So in the beginning of this, we talked about how the state was motivated by the Supreme Court decision to uncrowd the prisons and, redu and reduce overcrowding. And it was prisons. also a budget issue too, right? Because exactly. it was expensive to house these folks and we're going through a recession, the state needed money. And, it's, and how expensive is it approximately to, to house uh, someone in state prison? I believe the legislative analyst's office, when they last estimated it, put it somewhere between fifty and $60,000. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of money when you think about that. It is It is quite expensive. And so so if that was the goal, to redu reduce overcrowding in prisons mm -hmm. without substantially raising incarceration costs while also not threatening public safety, it seems like the reforms have been a success because as we talked about, the reforms have occurred and we haven't seen substantial increases in nope. reoffending behavior. No big spike. So um, let me ask you this, coming from a different perspective, is there any evidence to show that more severe sanctions or higher criminal penalties resulted in better or lower recidivism rates? Not exactly. Other research, and our research has was consistent with this, shows that there's not a strong statistical link between reoffending behavior and the severity or length of a sentence. And we sort of got into that when we talked about comparing the groups to the outcomes with the prison group, where offenders sentenced to prison in our data, they were supervised for an average of 980 days, so nearly three years. And compare that to the group that was supervised in jail, they were supervised for an average of 256 days, those sentenced to jail and probation, 71 days. And like we talked about, those offenders super sentenced to jail and jail and probation actually had lower reconviction Which outcomes. Which is kind of, that is really interesting. To repeat that again, they had lower uh, outcomes then they had they overall had so the the probation and jail and probation group had higher rearrest but lower reconviction Recon outcomes than which those. is I mean reconviction is the is the kind of that seemed to be the important one uh, sure and and like we've talked about there's a number of factors so we can't say for sure that this is a change in offending behavior but it is possible that as we got further away from realignment the resources accruing to counties allowed them to better supervise their offenders well uh, that's a lot of information you gave us Justin I want to appreciate I appreciate your your being with us Justin Goss with the Public Policy Institute of California. You're listening to the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. The primary goal of prison rehabilitation programs is to reduce the level of recidivism. The question is, do they work? 
Our guest is Jonathan Peterson with the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office, who recently authored a report that attempts to answer that question. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thank you for having me, Mark. So first, let's define recidivism. I know there's different kinds of definitions. How do you measure recidivism? You're right, Mark. There are different ways someone can measure recidivism. What recidivism tries to measure is how many offenders, after they're released from jail or prison, end up committing additional crimes. For example, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation measures recidivism as the number of offenders who, within three years of their release, are convicted of another crime. Why three years? Just, just to pick three years? Well, a lot of the recidivism that occurs will happen within that first year, okay. but it seems like looking over time, that's the n amount of time it takes before most inmates, if they're going to recidivate, do end up Yeah, they're trying to capture you know, that period of time. It seems exactly. like it would be enough time. So the goal of rehabilitation programs is to reduce recidivism, all right? Mm -hmm. And according to your report, uh, researchers have identified eight significant, what's called criminal risk behaviors, mm -hmm. things that are likely to result in reoffending. What are they, and can you give us an example of each and, and how they're addressed? Sure. So some of the, these eight factors include antisocial behavior, so whether someone associates themselves with other people. Um, antisocial personality would be another one. So that would be someone who's aggressive and that kind of thing? Yeah, and when, they, when they're put in hot situations where they could end up getting into criminal activity, they're not able to manage the situation and avoid that problem. Okay. You would also find relationships with other people involved in criminal activity being one of these mm -hmm. factors. There could also be attitudes and beliefs that someone has where they're thinking about criminal activity. They don't, having poor relationships with family members would also be one. Right. Low involvement with school or work uh, is another one of the factors. There could also be someone who doesn't have a lot of non-criminal activity hobbies. Uh, and also substance use problems. It's, uh, what is it, idle, idle hands or devil's workshop? Yeah. And, you know, the importance of family, the importance of work, these things that are stable in society prove out true in, in research. Um, mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of the different kinds of rehabilitation programs yeah. uh, to kind of uh, address some of these issues. So there's really seven major categories of state-funded rehabilitation programs. Okay. Some of the larger ones include academic education programs, which could be a GED program or, say, college education program. There's also career technical education or job skills programs. You can imagine a welding certificate program being an example. And there's a, there's a big demand for those kinds of uh, career technical education folks when they get released, I would assume. Correct, yeah. We talked about the, one of the criminal risk factors being employment right. and whether someone has a sustained work involvement. Right. And so certainly if they have one of these programs and a certificate that will increase the likelihood that they could get a job upon release, uh, could help them out quite a bit. Great. You'd also find substance use disorder treatment programs and cognitive behavioral therapy, which you can think of as programs like anger management to try right. and address some of those behavioral issues and learn how to um, improve behavior. Right, when response. you're upset, don't punch someone in the nose. Yeah. Calm down and, and work your way through it. Yeah, and there are also some arts programs and volunteer programs, so that kind of rounds out the picture. Okay. Um, so, you know, you say in your report that successful rehabilitation program has not only reduced crime, but they have other budgetary implications. Um, mm -hmm. What are some of those direct and indirect fiscal benefits of rehabilitation programs? So some of the direct benefits, the, the fiscal benefits that we can observe that in terms of state and local governments budgets include reduced incarceration costs. So if someone doesn't come back, the state or local governments don't have to pay to continue to incarcerate. Yeah, and, and again, I'm, I can't remember the number, but I would say it's, it's north of $50,000 a year to incarcerate someone. Yeah, the average cost in a California state prison, so this isn't the county jails, right. is about $75,000 yeah, so, so, okay, it's person. well north of $50,000. Yeah, now we know, I would note that 
if we didn't incarcerate that person, the state wouldn't get a $75,000 check because they have to keep the lights on in the prisons, the staff would still be there. But it is, it is a lot more expensive, expensive. To, to house someone in a facility rather than just provide them with a rehabilitation It's kind of program. being proactive versus reactive. We can lock them up or we can try to make sure they don't take that path or don't return to that path after they're right. released. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so we are talking about the direct implications. Yeah. What are some of the indirect fiscal benefits? So you can think of, I think a great example is someone who participated in, a, in an employment program. If they're able to get a job and keep that job, not only are they not getting involved in criminal activity, not creating crime victims, but they're also potentially um, not using as much in terms of other government uh, assistance programs. So you might see reduced costs for some of those uh, benefit programs being an indirect benefit of prison, of rehabilitation programs. So they're giving back to society. Mm -hmm. You know, also in your report, um, we've only about 30 seconds left in this segment, I want to talk about some of the other benefits you identified in the report. You want to talk about some of those? Managing yeah. inmate population, so for example? If for prison rehabilitation programs, you could imagine that having an easier to manage prison population could also benefit the state in terms of its costs. If because it's more cost costly to put them in, in these high-risk situations. Correct. Or, and also giving inmates uh, opportunities to just increase their educational attainment could also be beneficial, not necessarily from a fiscal standpoint, but all just in, in terms of increasing the overall well-being of the inmate population. Yeah. Okay. Well, up next, we're going to take a closer look at how inmate needs are assessed and addressed. That conversation in a moment. This is the Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Jonathan Peterson, an expert in the prison system with the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office on whether prison rehabilitation programs are, are successful in keeping ex-inmates from committing uh, future crimes after they're released. So it's my understanding that when someone is incarcerated, their rehabilitation needs are assessed. Can you uh, explain that process? Sure. Whenever someone enters the prison system, they first go to a reception center. I, I like that. A reception center. Yeah. and I'm not sure the inmates view it that way, but... <laughs> yes, and at these reception centers, they get their various needs assessed. So mm -hmm. if they have particular medical needs, healthcare needs, and rehabilitation needs. So they get two assessments. The first is, to, is called the CSRA, and it's to identify their risk of recidivating. So each inmate, based on various factors, including their criminal background, gets categorized as low risk, moderate risk, or high risk. Okay. Inmates who are higher risk, meaning moderate or high, get priority for rehabilitation programs. And I was looking at your numbers. I think the, the total of, of high risk and moderate risk inmates is, uh, what's the percentage in that? That's the majority, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's a little bit, of, it's around half. So yeah. just right about half. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second thing they do, they have something called COMPASS, yeah. the Correctional Offender Management Profiling for Alternative Sanctions. Exactly. Right. What it's a mouthful. Quite a mouthful. Compass. So what this really does, you can think of it as having someone actually sit down with the inmate and interview them and talk about, okay, okay what kinds of, what is your background? How did you get involved in the activities you've been involved in? And what kind of programs do you have a need for? Which of those risk factors we discussed earlier uh, are you demonstrating? Yeah, yeah I was recently at, at a state prison actually giving a talk and I was talking to some of the, the fellows there, uh, really a great group of guys when you sit down and talk to them, but some of their backgrounds, I mean, they're really starting off on, on the wrong foot in life. They just, you know, their, their parents were alcoholics, had substance abuse problems, or they were beaten by their parents. And, you know, they, they got in the wrong, they got in the gang life and went off in the wrong direction. And they're trying to change now. And some of these mm -hmm. rehabilitation programs are pretty important. Yeah. So what are some of the uh, most common needs that are identified in these programs? There are five that I think stand out more than any others. And they include substance uh, use problems, anger management issues, 
need for programs that change their criminal thinking, their behavior patterns, employment services programs, which could be one of these job training, mm -hmm. career technical education programs, and also programs that target uh, having supportive family relationships. Yeah, all very important. So, so you've got a state correctional system. They don't randomly lock up inmates and, and throw away the key. They're, they're actually mm -hmm. assigning inmates to appropriate rehabilitation programs. So how do they then decide, okay, here there's a need, and I'm going to assign you to a program. How does yeah. that work? Once, you, once the, the individual is transferred from the reception center to the prison where they're going to be housed, they sit down with a correctional counselor, and they talk through, here are the results of these assessments. What kind of programs are you most interested in being a part of? Then that conversation transfers over to this committee with that counselor and other rehabilitation program staff, and they determine which programs to assign that inmate to. But even the precursor to that is when they come into the reception center, they're actually sent to institutions that deal with their particular needs. Correct? Yeah, so depending on the environment and both from a physical health standpoint, rehabilitation program standpoint, what security level they need to be housed right. at. Right, right. So there's, there's a lot more thought going into it than simply you're going there. They, Absolutely. They, okay. Mm -hmm. um, so only about 3% of the state prison budget uh, is spent on rehabilitation programs. Uh, sounds like a small figure. It's actually $315 million. Academic and career uh, technical education receive about two-thirds of that amount, so about $200 million. Are there enough rehab programs to address the needs of the prison mm -hmm. population? So the way the department's budget is, they get a certain amount of funding to provide rehabilitation program slots. Right now, they, could, they can operate about 114,000 slots annually across the different programs we talked about. And these slots are basically how many inmates can we have in programs and complete them or participate for that year. Now, it's not the same to think of these 114,000 slots as the number of inmates that can be served. Because sometimes programs, um, while they might be full, and, or they might have wait lists, they, not all inmates are actually attending programs, and there might be some spots available that the institution hasn't been able to place an inmate in yet. So while there are those slots and they provide a certain amount of programming to offenders, it's really difficult to assess whether the number of spaces is how many the state needs. We really don't have the, the performance measures in place to give us that level of detail. Well, let me ask you this. When you noted earlier in your report that the most frequently identified rehabilitation needs mm -hmm. are for substance abuse, anger management, and critical thinking. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the report, it shows that those programs receive about less than a quarter Mm -hmm. uh, of all rehabilitation spending. So wh why the disconnect? Yeah, part of the reason for that difference in particular between the substance use disorder treatment programs, the cognitive behavioral therapy, and some of the other programs is that those programs are operated through contracts with various uh, pro rehabilitation program providers, as opposed to the academic education and career technical education, which are operated with state civil service staff. So because the okay. state isn't paying for the complete cost of those employees, they tend to be lower per, uh, re per uh, inmate participant than those academic Oh, okay. Education programs. Okay, that's a good explanation. Well, next we're going to look at the current state uh, of rehabilitation programs and where they might fall a little short. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Jonathan Peterson, an expert on the prison system with the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office about whether pre prison rehabilitation programs help keep uh, ex inmates from reoffending after release. Um, so there are some key principles that determine really whether rehabilitation programs work, reduce mm -hmm. recidivism. One of those is whether or not they're based, uh, they're evidence-based. Mm -hmm. um, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, an evidence-based program has two components. 
First, it's research-based, meaning elsewhere a rigorous evaluation has been done showing the program can reduce recidivism. The second component is that it's implemented with fidelity. And what that means is that the, the program not only is based on some sort of research, but it's actually operating as that research-based program laid the program out. Right, so you can't have a program that says, oh, we're going to copy this program, kind of, mm -hmm. in title, but not really follow the A, B, C, and D of the program, because then you're just not comparing apples to apples. Correct, yeah. Okay, titles are not determinative. It's the substance of the programs that mm -hmm. have to be the same. And, and you, I think, had in your report um, a chart on uh, the Washington State savings from various rehabilitation yeah. programs. and. Would that translate directly to California? It would be a little different, wouldn't Not it? Not perfect. Yeah, so for example, they looked at their career technical education programs mm -hmm. and said, per participant, it generates about $4,300 in net savings. Given that California operates similar programs, it stands to reason that our programs may also generate some net benefits. But the cost of operating programs may be different. The prison population the prison may be population different. as well. Yeah. So there's some mm -hmm. other variables that have to, you can't just automatically assume it's going to be directly... Yeah. Applicable. Okay. Um, a second key element in successful rehabilitation programs, according to your report, is that they're evaluated for cost effectiveness. Can you explain? Yeah. If the programs are evidence based, it increases the likelihood that they reduce recidivism, but it's still important to actually go in and evaluate whether your programs, as they're being operated, in fact do reduce recidivism. As we talked about, a program that was found effective in another state may not prove to be as effective as the program that is operating in California because the inmate population is different, the cost of providing it may also be different. Right, so you can't just make an assumption it's going to automatically translate from, say, state of Washington to state of California. And it's important to look at whether those whether the benefits you get actually justify the costs of continuing to operate that program over time. You would think that that's an automatic, right? You think that you can do a cost-benefit analysis. You wouldn't just automatically assume, but apparently some people do. So finally, uh, effective programs, you say, focus on what's called highest risk and highest need yeah. inmates. Can you explain that situation? Yeah, the research shows that programs that target the higher risk inmates in terms of their risk of recidivating, who also have the greatest level of rehabilitative needs, uh, if you target those inmates, you can generate the greatest reduction in recidivism. And, for example, Ohio looked at their rehabilitation programs and found that they were able to reduce recidivism for higher-risk inmates by 8% if they participated in a program for over a year. The lower-risk inmates, if they participated in that same program for over a year, they ended up having a 7 percentage point higher recidivism. I, I saw rate. that in your report, and I'm like, and scratching my head thinking, how in the world does that happen? Mm -hmm. Lower risk actually do worse when they went through that program. Yeah, and so I think what the main takeaway there is that by providing the correct programs to inmates based on their need could allow the greatest number of inmates to avoid future criminal activity, reduce the number of crime victims that are created, and generate the greatest impact that these programs have, given you have limited funding available. Right, so you've got to focus on the right people and then provide them the right programs. But it has to be focused, kind of mm -hmm. pinpointed. Um, you know, in your report, you said that uh, the state-funded programs have a few shortcomings in this regard. What did you yeah. find? Yeah, so first we found that the rehabilitation programs don't always follow the key principles that we just talked about. They aren't always evidence-based. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of cost-effectiveness evaluation of CDCRs rehabilitation programs, and that they're not always targeting these higher, higher risk and higher need offenders. So let me go through some of those. One of the things you talk about is they're not evidence-based, and one thing you point out is the California Arts and Corrections Program. What's going on there? So it's a program that provides, uh, brings in instructors from, the out, from outside of the prisons and has them provide arts instruction, uh, which 
from a recidivism reduction standpoint, there hasn't been an evaluation that we've seen that details how that program actually reduces recidivism. Doesn't mean it's not a program right. worth doing, but from just a recidivism reduction priority, it doesn't, it hasn't, that connection hasn't been made I to just don't, point. Mm -hmm. just don't know. Another way we're talking about when you talk about limited evaluation of cost effectiveness, you're looking at um, the CTE courses, career technical education courses, yeah. and whether they help. I mean, what'd you find there? So back in 2010, the CDCR worked with Chico State University to do an evaluation of their programs and did find that CTE programs resulted in a re reduction in recidivism. The key uh, difference, though, is they weren't able to then consider how much they cost to operate those programs. So we know they were effective. We just don't know whether they were cost effective. Okay, and the, and the last thing you were talking about was um, they aren't targeted to high-risk, high-need. What was happening there in California? There, I think there are just some programs where they haven't. They allow inmates of all risk levels, low risk, moderate risk, and high risk, into programs, and that they haven't been targeted to make sure that high risk inmates are in those programs first. Which are the ones where it actually works and is most effective? Mm -hmm. Okay. So up next, we're going to talk about some of the recommendations the LAO has to reduce, help reduce recidivism. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Jonathan Peterson, an expert in the prison system with the nonpartisan LAO, Legislative Analyst Office, about some of the California prison rehabilitation programs and whether or not they work in terms of reducing recidivism. Now, you've come up with some recommendations. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one you said was this, the, the prison system should be required to show that these programs are evidence-based. Mm -hmm. How do they go about doing that? Yeah, so as we discussed previously, being evidence-based requires that programs are research-based and, and implemented with fidelity. And so our recommendation is twofold. First, we recommend that the legislature direct CDCR to, to present a report showing the research that each of its programs is based off of. And when the legislature determines which programs to provide ongoing funding for, that they only provide funding for research-based Yeah, you, the only thing I noticed in your report, you also said eliminate funding for those where they can't show. You're going to give them some time yeah. to show you that, but if they can't show you empirically these things are, are, are working, then no. Yeah, and we, we do in our report address corrective action plans to give them that time that you mentioned. Yeah. And then second, we uh, do recommend that these programs are regularly evaluated to ensure that they are implemented with fidelity, to make sure that they not only are operating effectively, but continue to do so on an ongoing basis. And we think that the combination of these recommendations will allow CDCR to maximize the potential reduction in recidivism. Right, right which makes sense. So the second thing you argue is, quote, it's critical to measure the actual effect programs have on recidivism. I mean, unquote. In other words, you want to measure the actual cost effectiveness of rehab programs. How do you suggest the state go about doing that? Yeah, so... It's right now, given the lack of cost effectiveness evaluations, it's really difficult, if not impossible, for the legislature to assess whether it's making the most use out of its limited rehabilitation program resources. So what we're, what we're recommending to the legislature is that they work with independent researchers to decide how to do this in the most effective way to go out and look at what are, how effective are how cost effective are rehabilitation programs as CDCR is currently operating. What I thought interesting in your report was you were taking a, taking a look at a longitudinal study, another mm -hmm. period over time, which you know as a college professor I feel the same way about are we doing an effective job teaching our students? Don't ask them how well they like the class, but follow mm -hmm. them three, five, ten years out. Are they successful in their careers? And you're kind of thinking the same way with, with these programs. You're exactly right. Yeah, it'd be important to look at least a few years out to see whether or not it took a while for the recidivism reductions to happen or whether they were immediate. Yeah. So the third thing you say you want the state to do is you want them to more effectively target programs to high-risk and high-need mm -hmm. inmates. How do they go about doing that? Yeah, as we talked about, the, targeting those inmates can help maximize the potential recidivism reduction. And first, we recommend a committee comprised of rehabilitation program staff, 
researchers and stakeholders in these programs to make sure CDCR is using the right tools to identify who, which are the inmates that are the highest risk to recidivate. Second, we recommend that the legislature directs CDCR to prioritize the enrollment of its highest risk and, and highest need offenders to make sure that those inmates, the greatest number of those inmates possible are released having all of their rehabilitative needs met to help reduce right. the level of recidivism. So the last thing you want to see is high-risk, high high-need folks getting released from prison. You know they have this need, but they don't get the the, the, the training, whatever they need, uh, the help they need, mm -hmm. and they're right back in, in, engaging in crime again. Um, so let me go talk about the fourth thing you said. There are several recommendations. Mm -hmm. The fourth one you had is you want to see some improvement in the efficient use of existing rehabilitation resources. Mm -hmm. What exactly are you recommending there? Yeah, so to ensure that the legislature and CDCR have the information necessary to determine whether it's making the most use out of its existing funding, we first recommend that the legislature have CDCR conduct an assessment of its existing programs to determine what resources would be needed to meet all of the needs of its offenders and particularly those highest risk and highest need offenders mm -hmm. to determine where we are compared to that, to that amount of funding. And additionally, we recommend that the legislature consider whether or not to incorporate uh, attendance into how it funds rehabilitation. I, I saw that recommendation. That was really interesting. It's mm -hmm. very much like schools, right? Schools are given money based on average daily attendance, yeah. and you're thinking the same thing in, in prison training programs. Right, and it might be attendance. It might also include other performance measures. The goal is to give CDCR an incentive to make sure that inmates get to these programs as frequently as they're offered to make sure that if they're happening, that inmates are able to take advantage it's of it. It's just really interesting because I, I have a child in, in school, and yes, there's, there's an implicit pressure to show up at school, uh, mm -hmm. to not cut classes, because they're counting on that average daily attendance to get their funding. That's right. Now, finally, you recommend improved performance measures to enable regular oversight. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so robust performance metrics are really needed to enable regular oversight over these rehabilitation programs. How effectively is the funding being used? Uh, what to what extent is legislative or department action needed to improve them? And at a minimum, we we CDCR should provide reliable information on things like the percentage of inmates in a given year who are enrolled in programs consistent with their needs, and the percentage of inmates that are released having their needs met. Now that's that's a, a bunch of very good recommendations that the legislature and, and CDCR will probably be looking at. I we hope. I want to thank our guest uh, Jonathan Peterson from the California's Legislative Analyst Office for joining us. If you want to stay up with state and local politics, you can follow us on. Facebook and Twitter or log on to the Maddie Institute website to follow us uh, on the Maddie Daily. This is Mark Kepler from the Maddie Report. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in the Maddie Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.